0: morning, Uh, My name is George, if, if you don't know me. I'll be your scripture reader today. I'm going to be reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, the entire chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nation and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dreams for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is also called Balthasar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of holy gods is in him. I say, Balthasar, chief of magicians, I know that the spirit of holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. These are the visions I saw while lying down in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruits abundant, and on it was fruit for all. Under under it, wild animals found shelter, and birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In a vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger. Coming down from the heavens, he called, coming down from the heavens, he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from it from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and browns, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his might be changed from, from that of a man, and let him be given the might of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision was announced. Is announced by the messenger. The holy ones declare the, the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all, all, all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and, sit, and sets over them the lowest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, had. Now, Bethesda says, sir, Tell me what it means for none of these wise men in my kingdom can interpret for me, but you can, because the spirit of the Holy God is in you. Then Daniel, also called Balthasar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thought terrified him. So the king said, Balthasar, do not let the dream of its meaning alarm you. Balthasar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemy, and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touched the sky visible to the whole earth with the beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. And your dominion extend to distant parts of the Earth. Your Majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, "Cut down that tree and destroy it." But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with dews of heaven, let him live with wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty and this is the decree of the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all uh, kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of, his, of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is, is it not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and full glory my, of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came down from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your loyal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from, from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glorify, exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his way, ways are, are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble this is the word of the Lord
1: thank you George <laughs> yeah his tongue tired <laughs> pride comes before the fall. If you could go ahead, yeah, there we go. The slides. Have you ever heard that before? No? Okay. Some of us I bet have. Anybody here have heard of it before? A few? Yeah? Yeah. Well, it actually comes from an Old Testament book called Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18, which says which says Oh, got to turn it on. That might work. Which says, here we go. Which says, something's stuck. Can you just advance it to the next? There we go. Thanks. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And they just say pride comes before the fall. Now our text today in Daniel chapter 4 is a proclamation of King Nebuchadnezzar of this very statement where he says at that, that very last verse, if you heard <laughs> that last statement George just read, the last verse where he says there, and it's working now, oops, now yeah, I'm fighting with you, yeah, here we go, I, I got it now, it's working. Uh, now I, Nebuchadnezzar prays and exalt the glori- and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, even if he is the king of the most powerful nation on the world at that time. You know, there's a funny story, or interesting story, during the time way back uh, of this guy named Muhammad Ali. Oh, now it's not working. <laughs> All right. A lot of technical difficulties today. Okay, so Muhammad Ali, uh, he was the heavyweight world champion boxer of the world during this time when the story takes place. And the story is he gets on an airplane, and as the airplane is taxiing down the runway, he uh, is in his seat, and the the flight attendant walks by and notices that Muhammad Ali is not wearing his seatbelt. So she naturally says, Oh, uh, could you please put on your seatbelt, sir? And Muhammad Ali, the world champion boxer of, you know, of the whole world, looks at her with pride and says, Superman don't need no suit belt. And then she quickly looks at him and says, well, Superman doesn't need any plane either. <laughs> and that's what pride does. It kind of blinds us to our own weakness and our own sinfulness that's right there before us. We just don't see it. And we observe in Daniel chapter 4 this Truth that pride blinds King Nebuchadnezzar and he doesn't even see that how small he is in in light of the great and almighty God. So a number of years had passed since this experience of Daniel chapter 3, which we talked about, of the three friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace and this chapter 4, where now he is, the King Nebuchadnezzar, is talking about uh, this dream he has and um, the uh, the interpretation, and then he went in insane, insane in a sense. We would guess for like seven years. Says so seven times, and then his restoration. So this is all being told us by King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's already happened. So if we there's this big period of time that's happened between chapter three and chapter four, and King King, King Nebuchadnezzar, we know from archaeology, he reigned in Babylon for 43 years. And so if we kind of put the pieces together, uh, he was insane for seven years, and then he returned to health for a little while before he died, Um, and all his building projects that we see and learn of in archaeology were accomplished, uh, and he alludes to them as well in verse 30. So what we can guess is that it was probably around the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule that he... Could have We see this happening where he got the dream, it was interpreted before he went insane. So this means practically all that is that it's about 30 years has passed since chapter 3 in Daniel to chapter 4. So it's three decades. Uh, I mean, how many of you here are older than three decades? Oh, don't raise your hands. Okay, that's kind of a... Maybe an inappropriate question. But in Daniel chapter 1, just a little review, we saw that Daniel and his friends were taken from Jerusalem, the Jewish nation of Israel, and forced and exiled into Babylon. And they were forced to be into the service of the king. And we learned there that they were faithful to God to follow his commands despite what was being put on them. And God honored that. And so they stood out among all the other trainees. They were way above in their their giftedness, and so God honored that. And then in chapter 2, God revealed uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel and his friends, because if you remember, the king had this dream, another dream, but he wouldn't tell anybody what it was. He said, no, you've got to tell me what I dreamt. And all his wise men said, that's impossible. Nobody's ever asked that. You tell us the dream, then we'll tell you the interpretation. But then God revealed the dream to Daniel and his friends and brought glory to himself again. And then in chapter 3, the story was about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Actually, Daniel wasn't in the picture then. It was just about his three friends in the fiery furnace and how God saved them from burning alive in this blazing furnace. So that was chapter 3. And so we're, we're here in chapter 4 now. Uh, where after chapter 3, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is great. He's the only God that could have saved people like that from the, the fiery furnace. But now three decades later, we see him in a little different state. And here he has another dream. And he actually tells it to his wise men, and they can't decipher what it means. I always wondered, though, you know, you look at that dream, I wonder if his wise men were just too nervous about what it probably meant. Like, no way, are you going to tell the king that he's going to cut down and and become a stump? I'm not going to tell him that. I mean, we just don't know. You know, I kind of take the safe way out. But anyway, I don't know, I just wondered about that because even Daniel hesitates, right? He's like, whoa, uh, I, I, I hope this meaning was for your enemies rather than for you, <laughs> but here it is. So I'm going to tell you. And, uh, but this was a dream of the to- coming judgment for King Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's tough to tell a king to his face that your time is coming and, and God's going to judge you But so after Daniel then interprets the dream for him and the meaning of the dream, he gives the king some advice. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Because Daniel knew those who had repented of the jewish leaders god was gracious to them and so he was pleading with them but nebuchadnezzar did not respond to the warning of the dream or to daniel's plea to renounce of his sins he kept doing his own thing so 12 months later we learn from chapter 4 that when the king nebuchadnezzar pridefully one day says look at all this amazing things that i have done out of my own power i am awesome and then from heaven, this voice comes and the Lord humbles him by making him basically go insane and become like an animal. I would have loved to see when they described like his hair became like feathers and things and his nails like the animals. And That must have been pretty gross, of this mighty powerful king becoming that insane. And this is what the voice of heaven said to remind us. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. It's out of his control. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by you by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign and over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And so then the story goes on. This happens to him for seven times, which from what we can tell in the text and Daniel as a whole, seven times means probably seven years. And then Nebuchadnezzar is restored when he humbly acknowledges that God is his Lord and ruler and he's the ruler over all things on earth. And this is the theme that runs throughout the whole entire Bible of Scripture, that pride comes before the fall again and again and again. Uh, Over and over again, the the Lord God desires that you and I live acknowledging the simple truth that He is creator, that He is in charge of this reality, and that all things good that we experience come from Him. And so if we refuse to acknowledge that, be due to our pride, then we will be humbled ultimately. Let me just throw out a few times in the scriptures, this is mentioned in different ways. Second Chronicles 26, 16, but after Uzziah, who is a king of uh, Judah, became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Psalm ten four. In his pride the wicked man does not seek him, meaning God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. Isaiah 2.11 The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in the New Testament, 1 John 2.16 For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. Our struggle with thinking of ourselves first and foremost all the time begins from the beginning of our lives. It's hard not to think of ourselves. It's hard. We're always the first (laughs) go-to, the default. And this is our sinful nature that we inherently have when we're born. This is the teaching of the scriptures. For example, there's a story of after only two weeks of preschool, this five-year-old grandson of a lady named Linda Wilbanks came home from school with great excitement. Now remember, he's five years old. Comes home from school and he's like, Grandma, I'm the smartest kid in my class. And Grandma's like, pride goes up and goes, Wow, so did the teacher tell you that? And he goes, No, Grandma, I had to tell her that. It starts, the pride we have starts right from the very beginning of our lives. Nobody has to teach us this. And as British writer and theologian C.S. Lewis has said and put it, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are just mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation And every family since the world began. So we can say pride is this attitude of self sufficiency, self importance, self exaltation. It's almost like the way we learn to do an interview, right? We got to tap into our pride because we got to put ourselves out there. We got to make ourselves look good, right? Um, Not necessarily. You could just speak the truth, right? Yeah, I've done this, Uh, I'm good at this and that but it's almost like we need to be prideful in an interview to get the job. And we may actually think that, you know, I don't really think that I'm more important than God, right? I don't think that. But if you look at our actions and our decisions, they may speak otherwise, that we are actually thinking <laughs> we're more important than God. And if our pride actually causes us to exalt ourselves, uh, we are painting a target on our back for God to say, I think that person needs to be brought low a little bit, (laughs) humbled in some way. And so, because he has declared that he will bring pride low where it exists, unchecked, wherever he finds it, whether it's with angels or humans or believers or not yet believers who uh, haven't decided yet to follow him. It was pride that caused Satan to be Cast out of heaven, it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. And it is pride that will be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. The danger of pride is something that each of us needs to really take seriously. Uh, It is our greatest enemy. And we may not be as obvious as King Nebuchadnezzar, where we walk around, at least I don't think any of you are because I haven't detected this huge, big-head arrogance like, I am so awesome, I have look at all that I have achieved in my life. Aren't I awesome? Just look at me. I'm awesome. No, nobody's like that. Our pride may show up in a much more indirect uh, way in our lives, in our families, with our friends, um, such as uh, simply in the fact that a lot of us may not ask for help. We don't like to ask for help because of our pride. We don't want to admit that we can't solve this problem. I mean, there's nothing wrong, get, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with trying to approach problems ourselves and try to solve it ourselves at first. But there's a lot of times in things in life we can't do ourselves, we can't figure it out ourselves, and so we need to ask others for help. But we don't want to do that. For example, the first two years of my marriage with May... Uh, we had some problems, <laughs> and I thought I could fix it myself, and so I resisted to get help. I can do it myself. I'll fix it, but it got to a tipping point, and I realized, I had to admit, I could not fix it <laughs> myself. I was not doing a good job fixing this problem, and so with, by God's grace and with the help of a counselor, uh, may and I worked through it, and here we are. <laughs> still married together and I love her even more and so you need that pride was the resistance that I said no I can do it myself I don't need help I can do it because it's just this inner pride um, it may work out this whole idea of not asking for help or resisting to ask for help because of our pride in more even practical ways as followers of Christ it may show up as an unwillingness to seek help in a sense, resisting or even not even having a desire to read God's word. Because why do we need to read God's word? I mean, he's giving us help there, but I don't need it. I can just figure things out on my own. Or it may just, we resist praying to the Lord, because prayer is, again, realizing, acknowledging at that moment that I am dependent on you, Lord God, and I need your help. So if we resist reading God's word or we... Resist this habit of prayer, that is a sign of our pride. Uh, or seeking opportunities to study, you know, these little short periods where there's times where we can study God's word with other believers. We feel we can live on our own wisdom. We can figure things out on ourselves. We don't need God's guidance practically. We may say we do, but we don't actually show it in the decisions of our life. There's another um, way that pride works in us, and that is that, oh boy, it's stuck again. Hey, there we go. It blinds us from seeing the truth about ourselves, from seeing the truth in relation to us. You know, chances are good that most of us are not sitting here today saying, yeah, I'm prideful, I, I see the pride in my life. No, it's hard to see, it's easy to see the pride in other people because it really annoys us, but it's hard to see the pride in our own lives and the way it shows up. It's, it's difficult. And C.S. Lewis, actually, who I mentioned before and quoted, uh, suggests a couple ways of detecting if pride is evident in our lives. And first, is funny, it's kind of, we believe we are sufficiently humble. Yeah, I'm humble. And, and, and that in itself is evidence of pride. It's kind of like the story of the employee that was actually awarded for being the humblest employee of this large company. And, you know, it's a great honor. And so he, but he, they had to take the award away the next day because he pinned it to his shirt and wore it to work to show it off to everybody. So yeah, it's like we get, take pride in our humility. I'm so humble, you know. <laughs> Just follow my example. I'm super humble, you know. Uh, that's a sign of pride. Uh, the second one is that we ask, oh, let's try it again. It's stuck again. We need to ask ourselves: am I deeply disturbed when I receive an insult? I mean deeply disturbed. When I somebody insults me or criticizes me or maybe doesn't take notice of me or maybe um, they think they're better than I am Or actually, they are better and they show off that they're better than I am? Am I deeply disturbed by this? Like it just shakes my world? That's evidence of pride. Uh, Pride is tricky. And we need to recognize it only by going to the Lord and again asking for His help to reveal where the pride is in our life and then renounce it and, and give it over to Him. The third way which is an interesting way, is go to the people that you live with or work with and ask them to point out areas in your life where they think you might be a little bit arrogant or prideful or self-focused in some way. And you might be surprised at what they say since you've given them the freedom to speak freely about you (laughs) and what they observe. So this is all from C.S. Lewis. You know, there's a danger as well in spiritual pride. And so, think of this, if it applies to you, or I will, it applies to me, is if you ever thought, like, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Spiritual pride. It's, it's this spiritual comparison, and no matter which way it goes, it's evidence of our spiritual pride. I'm better than him, or he's much better than I am, you know, in the sense of walking with the Lord, or whatever it is in that spiritual sense. Pride is self-importance, meaning that we become the focus and the standard that we compare everybody else to. We've taken God and we've replaced ourselves as the measurement standard. So it's me and he's better than I am. Or I am better than he is. It's always about me. I'm the standard that I'm comparing everybody else to. That's evidence of pride. And pride is also present when we are ethnocentric and i'm bringing this up because of our context here ethnocentric is thinking that our culture is better or more important than others other cultures and if we approach another culture with this superior attitude like i've got it together my culture is the way to go and yours is not and then we're looking down on other people and we're already putting barriers there and it's going to make it really hard for us to connect with them as people because we feel superior. Ethnocentrism causes us to approach others with blinders on, where, again, pride blinds us to how we view ourselves and our own sinfulness. And I bring this up because we are a church of multiple cultures and languages. And if the temptation we fall to is to view us and our culture as better than other cultures... Then that's going to lead to division and arguments, and that is not honorable to the Lord Christ and whom we follow because he is a God of peace and harmony. And so, ethnocentrism is another uh, evidence of pride. Now, while the Lord brings down the prideful, he also says he upholds the humble. And God said in Isaiah 66:2. Uh, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So this is key. Humility is having the right view of ourself and others in relation to God and who he is and acting accordingly. There's that acting part that ties in. Let me say that again. Humility is having the right view of ourself in relation to God and also the right view of others in relation to God and then acting accordingly. And what is the right view of ourselves? Well, we are God's creatures. He created us. We are small. We are finite. Uh, We are dependent on Him. We're limited in intelligence and ability, prone to sin, and we will soon die. At some point, we're all going to die and we're going to face God's judgment. That's the reality. But there's also... We are God's children through faith in Jesus. We are created, we're loved, we're redeemed by God's grace and it's not based on anything that we have done or earned but only because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And we are gifted by God with certain unique gifts and abilities and resources and advantages which are to be used for His glory, not our own. And as 1 Corinthians 4, 7 whoops, there we go, says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it, like it's of you. So that's what King Nebuchadnezzar said, right? Look at the great, awesome things that I have accomplished by my own power. And God said, yeah, you can do anything like that unless I gave you that power, put you in that position at the right time, you know, Everything was from him. You know, there's a story of two women in Shanghai who were discussing this issue of pride. They were believers. And they at, were at the time of in the history of Hudson Taylor. He was alive, and he was a great missionary in China. And so they were talking about this issue of pride, and they said, wow, I wonder how if Hudson Taylor, or missionary Taylor, has ever been tempted to pride because of all his great accomplishments that he's done at this point in his life. And so they, they knew his wife, Maria, and they asked her about it. And then Maria said, well, I'll ask him. We'll find out. That's a good question. So she went to Hudson Taylor and she asked him, have you ever been tempted to be proudful about? And he said, "Proudful. What, about what? And she says, about all the things that you've accomplished, what, that you've done. And he said, I didn't do anything. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I never thought that I did anything. And see, that's humility. He always he saw anything that was done was because the Lord ordained it and he was just God's tool. True humility is our greatest friend. It increases our hunger for God because we know we have to depend on him and then the good things will come through us if he ordains that to happen. It opens our hearts to his spirit. It leads to an intimacy with the Lord God himself because we are acknowledging who we are in relation to Him. Humility spreads, in a sense, the aroma of Christ to whoever we encounter. But developing this attitude, this identity, this way of humility before God is gradual. It doesn't happen overnight. It's like, in a sense, peeling an onion. You peel off one layer, and then there's another layer there. But gradually, we're making progress, right? If you've ever done it, you eventually get... It's smaller and smaller, and that's how humility is. It eventually seeps into our souls when we seek to humble ourselves before the Lord. But it requires us to do this by daily deliberate choices in dependence on the Lord and how we live. And then it'll take root in our souls. And as the Lord God said to his people in Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face," and turn from their wicked ways, meaning obey, then I will hear, your, uh, hear you from heaven, I will forgive your, their sin, and I will heal their land. Pride comes before the fall. Pride is a universal human problem. You have it, I have it. It's the root of our sin. We put ourselves above God, we say we don't need Him. Everyone suffers from it to some degree, and when we have exalted ourselves in pride, God does not want to punish us. He already punished His Son on our behalf. He wants to restore us and reach His hand out to us and lift us up in humility as we acknowledge Him. He says again and again in Scripture, Humble yourselves and I will exalt you. In a sense, trust me. But if you continue to put yourself before me, I will pop that bubble. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not a punishment. It's a discipline. He's going to remind us of the reality of things. <laughs> you are not in control, and I am in control. You see, humility, basically, brothers and sisters, is knowing that we are God's children and that He is our loving Father who is sovereign over all things and, and everything is ordained by His decision. Even the bad things He allows to happen to you and me, and He, in His amazing ability, can work His good through it if we could only trust Him and humble ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, you're, this is impossible for us on our own, to acknowledge that You are God and we are in your hands we fight against that in our pride we want control of our lives even though that's never the reality and so Lord we pray that your spirit would move us as your church to humbly come before you and acknowledge our smallness and your greatness our how much we fall short and yet you lift us up in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we turn ourselves to you. Humbly we pray that we would follow your lead as Jesus modeled that he came and became like a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that we can have life and be saved in him. Lord, thank you for demonstrating your love so clearly in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen.